News. 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 New York City. F-A-Q. Welcome to Just Us. I'm FAQ NYC host Harry Siegel. Just, Just us. us. Just Us. FAQ NYC is Look Inside the Courts with reporter Victoria Bekempis and multimedia wretch Alex Brooklyn talking about justice and everything else that happens inside the courts. We're going to hear not only a bit about a case that has been dominating the New York court scene for quite some time, but also a little bit of backstory about one of the star reporters that had been covering it from the get-go. Joining Victoria and Alex for the first standalone episode is ABC editor and veteran courts reporter Christina Correga. Christina Correga. A legendary courts reporter. Wow. Legendary. Wow. Ooh. Sheesh. I, I mean, you can't do better than Christina. She just always routinely kicks ass and breaks stories. Wow. And I could sing your praises for hours on end, and mm. I'm completely sincere. And you know that because I hate everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Christina, what's your origin story, superhero that you are? Superhero oh, apparently, courts reporter. I, I guess if I'm going to be a title of like legendary, I would have to say I implement myself off of Irene Cornell, the legendary court reporter. Irene is, I think she's still on for WCBS News Radio 88. She has covered cases from as far back as the 1950s. She covered the Kitty Genovese case. I mean, that's a classic New York City um, story of um, New Yorkers being New Yorkers, not going to help someone when they're screaming for help. But um, how I got to where I'm at right now, born and raised in New York City, Brooklyn, New York. Hey. Hey. Right? Hey. Right? Where's, where in Brooklyn? Canarsie. Oh, man. Yeah. Last stop on the L and then a couple of blocks walking. That's where I was. The L before the L. The L before anybody cared it was the L. Right. Um, where the stop was just called Canarsie. Now <laughs> they call it Canarsie Rockaway Parkway for some reason. Like it's supposed to be a staple point. If anybody <laughs> said, oh, we're going to shut down the L for two years back then, it would have been like, uh, what? Yeah, Cuomo's yeah, right. L train, not Andy Byford's L train. Oh, oh. that's right. Yes, because he's calling the shots. Yeah. And he's like, well, is that a transit slap? Right. Yeah, I know. I mean, Andy's like, I mean, it's so unbelievable. Andy's like, oh, hello. I was I'm here to fix your train. <laughs> and Andrew Cuomo's like, ha-ha. <laughs> so thinks you. <laughs> what's, your, what's your plan, little man? And he's like, well, we should shut down the L and fix everything. And Cuomo's like... That would be cute, but instead I'm going to stand on top of the L train and say, guess what, everybody? We're not shutting down the L train with my Superman cape on. Wow, <laughs> that was Andy amazing. Byford is like, oh, I'm not sure quite how to do it now. Well, perhaps... Oh, perhaps we should arrest tons of poor people at every train oh station for God. hopping. And I'm like, mm, maybe you don't know the history of this city and how like terrible it would be to over-police again all the poor neighborhoods. Mm. But, you know, I digress. Wow. <laughs> that was such a great unwritten episode of Thomas the Tank Engine. That really was, I loved though. it. Yeah. yeah. yeah I was totally really pictured it. Like, you know, Byford would be like a, a new character with a new face. A new, yeah, a new yeah. little train. But how has that not been some graphic art in the New York Post? Seriously. Maybe somebody wants to do a little Thomas the train tank engine version of like Cuomo's (laughs) and Andy Byford's weird relationship. Where de Blasio is in that? I don't know. He's on a choo-choo train headed out for Ohio right now. I was going to say Iowa. (laughs) Yeah, he's in Iowa. His train's in Iowa at the moment. 
even with that conversation, they only treated the L for the Myrtle Avenue and up right. stops. They forgot that there's a whole breed of people who rely on this one train because there's no other trains in Canarsie. So um, grew up there. And then I went to St. John's University, where I majored in journalism. I was on the Torch newspaper. Shout out to the Torch. Shout out to the Torch. Everybody pick up a copy. Wait, is it still in print? Yes, every Thursday. Every Thursday, pick up a copy of the Torch. I have tried to make it a point to pick up an actual physical newspaper at least once a day. So, Mm. like, whether it's the Post, the Daily News, the Amsterdam News, like, if you guys look on your newsstand and just, like, spend a dollar and pick up some sort of local paper somewhere, it's really worth it. If That's it costs a dollar. I mean, isn't right. the news a dollar twenty five on the regular day, unfortunately? Yes. Yeah, so yeah. you gotta get the dollar and a quarter dollar average a quarter. price. Okay, so completing the resume <laughs> real quick. <laughs> Started as a copy kid at the New York Post, seeing how the beast is ran from the eye of a Intern, if you will, getting paid seven dollars and sixty cents an hour. Ooh la la! I know, big big earner, big, big spender. Big bucks coming out of college with a student loan behind me, right? Uh, but you know, of course, that wasn't the only job. Had to hustle and work two different jobs. I was working three jobs at one time. I don't know when I slept. Now I'm thinking about it. Threatened to leave the post one year, and they were like, "Oh no." We need you to stay. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) So then they offered me a staff position um, covering the courts in Queens. Then I left the post for real, for real. And then I went to the dark side, PR. And I was a press officer for the Kings County District Attorney for the late great Ken Thompson. Stayed with that for about a year. Being a press person seems to be like the downside to journalism, like you end your career there. But I found it to be so fascinating to be on the other side to know how much you can actually use to mold a story. And I found myself molding stories for reporters. And it was fun doing it. It was like kind of being the puppeteer in the media. And then you see how it ends up in the end in the paper or on the broadcast um, station. And you're just like, I did that. I, was, I like, was the puppet master I was behind the, the scenes. Yeah, yeah, the deep throat, if you will, for all these ridiculous stories. <laughs> did you listen stories. to Metallica a lot of the time? No. Mm-hmm. I actually came in here listening to Alanis Morissette because I was feeling some kind of way. Which so, song? Well, the whole Jagged Little Pill album. Okay. So I left the DA's office after doing that for a year, and then I went to the news, and I was excited. I finally felt like I was a journalist. No, no shade, New York Post, but the Daily News really, like— molded me to really be able to tell New York City stories because the Daily News cares, cared about <laughs> those outside of Manhattan that weren't a part of the Upper West Side Stop at Harlem community, you know. So I was telling stories from people that were affected by things like the subway system or the criminal justice system, especially the criminal justice system, because I found my niche covering wrongful convictions. I found myself covering, you know, alleged tainted cops, Scarcella, mm-hmm. really started understanding how this whole system works to the point where I think I could probably defend myself if I get arrested. You know what I mean? Um, I wish I had known you when I ended up in Queens County. Oh, yeah. I yeah. That whole, oh gosh, Queens County, they have their issues. Well, we're going we're gonna to probably be covering the Queens DA race pretty soon. Oh, nice. Um, so that'll, that'll be something that we can... We can maybe bring you back on for. So speaking of a paper to pick up for that, the Queen's Daily Eagle. was. Yeah, I love the Queen's Daily Eagle. That was my next stop after the Daily News when they laid us off in July, but we ain't going to talk about that. I actually was the news editor for the Queen's Eagle for about five months before I'm at my current stop at ABC News as a news editor there. 
Yeah. How are you liking ABC? ABC is a big beast. Like, it's not just ABC. It's Disney. It's right. Going from the Queen's Eagle yeah. to ABC mm-hmm. is like a whole different world. How's that adjustment going? It's a whole different version of mass, you know, because yeah. I went from print my whole career to now broadcast. Now, I did an internship at ABC when I was in college, but it wasn't for what I'm doing at all. It's not even in the same realm. Like I said, it's a big beast and I'm still learning. It's only been a month. You got to you got to also mention all of your true crime work. I didn't mean to interrupt you, oh. but it's so awesome. <laughs> it is so so awesome. I don't know where she finds the time. And I didn't mean to interrupt, but I just but you're right. up. I'm like, <gasps> "Okay, um while we were laid off and we were just um you know, figuring our lives out during those months. We, While we were trying to figure out if we were going to mo- make moves to wherever we needed to go, doing interviews and what have you, I actually got hooked up with Jupiter Productions and taped a few episodes of crime dramas, you know. So my Ooh. first episode aired this week for on Snapped. I was on Snap, guys. That was so cool. It was a case that I actually covered in Brooklyn. What case? The Alicia Noel Murray case. And this was a wo- woman that... Inside the courthouse, they called her the Black Widow. Mm. You know, I won't give too much away on the episode, but, you know, dumb, dumb, dumb. She got convicted, right? (laughs) (laughs) Dumb, dumb, dumb. And it was cool because the producers, when I was doing the interviews, they were like, we have nobody to talk about what happened in the courtroom because, of course, they're appealing. So the prosecutors couldn't come in and talk about it. So they needed someone to give the skinny on what happened in the courtroom, put us in the room. Well, I love them. They're cool. I, right? I, I love them. I could watch I could watch Snapped and I mean this in all sincerity. I mean I could watch Snap for like weeks on end. Now let's get into the Chanel Lewis case. It's been winding through New York courts for a while now and uh, of late dominating national media. Alex, wanna give us a rundown on the case? Sure. No problem. Chanel Lewis was accused of killing jogger Karina Vetrano and found guilty Monday night, April 1st, of first-degree murder and other charges. The case was tried in Queen's Supreme Court, and it was full of twists and turns. After both sides had rested, the defense lawyers received an anonymous letter claiming that evidence was withheld from the defense and that police initially suspected two, quote, jacked up white guys. We're quoting the letter here, the anonymous letter. Lewis's lawyers believe that there was a bunch of information wrongly withheld, but the judge, Justice Michael B. Alois, refused to hear the issue. Chanel Lewis's first trial was in November 2008. It ended with controversy because the same judge declared a mistrial after only 13 hours of jury deliberations. And issues surrounding the retrial are expected to prompt an appeal. Christina, your coverage has been unparalleled. I mean, it really has been. I'm very tired this morning, but I think unparalleled is the right word. <laughs> That's what I We're mean. We're going to rock with it. Yeah. The Vetrano Lewis case, which I have been on since the arrest in 2017, February. I mean, it started off, it was August 2nd, 2016. Karina Vetrano went jogging for the first time without her dad, Phil Vetrano, in Howard Beach, Queens. Um, they jogged together in the adjacent Spring Creek Park. She just didn't come home in the time that the father thought she's supposed to come home on a Tuesday in August, you know, with the heat and after work hours. He started to make some calls. He called her first, um, pretty much said, Karina, where the fuck are you? Got off the phone. Um, Like that was a quote. 
And, uh, <laughs> and then, the mark um, of a concerned father. And then he calls a friend of his who lives in the neighborhood who has ties to the law enforcement. And then he makes some calls. So nobody called 911 at this point, right? Because, you know, you have to be missing for 48 hours before them to even care to even right. actually send the search party out, which I understand this is what the position of Mr. Vetrano was. So the friends call a friend to call a friend to call a friend, and then all of a sudden there's a search party going on. And the father is leading the search for his daughter, and um, he stumbles across her body in the middle of the weeds, which were eight feet tall. They were unkempt you know, the trail that they ran through together. And she was allegedly partially clothed. At first, we learned, she was face down on the ground. As the trial happened the first time, she was on her back. The father grabs his daughter. And these are two different versions, His two different of his versions. And the police versions. And the police versions. It just started to, oh, you know, right. strangely go back and forth. The father grabs his daughter, hugs her tight. First trial Dad says he takes off her necklace that was on her neck and later on gives it back to the ME's office to test for, you know, testing. Second trial, we hear nothing about the necklace, right? Okay. And they, why was there a second trial? Well, fast forward, and I'll go backwards. Fast mm-hmm. forward November 2018, um, they had the first trial after they had an arrest in 2017 of Mr. Chanel Lewis, who was 20 years old at the time. And after 13 hours of deliberations, um, it was the days before Thanksgiving break, and the judge asked the jury, you know, are you coming back with a verdict? And they were like, listen, we are hung. We we need more. Uh, we just can't come up with a decision. 13 hours for any jury is still fresh time. Like, go back there. What do you need? Figure it out. We'll send out what you need. You know, send a search party out for the evidence for you. We'll do whatever we need to get you. This judge just skips all procedures that are heard of. No Allen charge was given, and he declared a mistrial. And we were like... Wait, what? We still have one more day before Thanksgiving break, and he didn't even say, like, try again tomorrow, y'all need to sleep or something. No. Mistrial. And the jurors afterwards told the Times, I believe, we wanted to continue working, and the judge just declared a mistrial. Yeah. So that's why we had two trials in this case, um, dragging out something. Although I will give Queens County some credit their normal average time to actually get a case to trial, no matter what the felony level is, average three and a half years. Jesus. Oh, wow. Jesus Mary St. Joseph. Average three and a half years. And that comes from reasons of Queens County being the only county in the five boroughs that waives the uh, 18080 rule. So, What's the 18080 rule? So when you get arrested on a felony, you go to court, you can either get indicted on an ex-indictment or, which which means that a grand jury decided you're indicted for such and such charge, such and such charge. Or you get um, arraigned on a criminal complaint, which means you go through the system, central bookings, then you see a judge, they set your bail. You either go to Rikers and sit there because you can't afford bail, or you get released because you're able to afford a bond or the cash amount that they sometimes give as an alternative to your bond. <clears throat> When you have a criminal um, complaint against you and it's a felony, they then convene a grand jury. In the other four boroughs, um, they have to convene that grand jury within five days of your arrest time or your arraignment time. So in Queens, they waive that, meaning they get a six-month window to do a grand jury. Now, some people would argue, 
Well, that gives them time to investigate the case more to say that they won't bring a grand jury and waste taxpayer dollars. I got the quotes up when I'm saying that. Air quotes. Air quotes. (laughs) By investigating before indicting someone to then unnecessarily have somebody pending a um, indictment. The other boroughs would say that we're doing speedy trial of favor. I got the quotes up again on that one mm-hmm. by quickly going to the grand jury to see if we have enough evidence based on what the police has brought to us and based on the initial investigation the prosecutors have so that we can properly indict people on charges that they should be charged with. Now, those other four boroughs can also waive 18080 on the defense's consent because they might really need to start interviewing people. But it gives them pressure to hurry up and right. figure out, oh, do we have the right person? Do we have enough evidence? Which can be a good or bad thing. So because Queens does this waiving of the 18080, you got the six-month window, people are sitting in Rikers or they're out on bail and they're just waiting to find out, are they indicted and on, and on what charges? Right. So you got, So say you get arrested January, you got till June. And if they need more time, they can extend it based on the consent. And that can drag on. But then you got that speedy trial rule, which the days are 180 days. So you got time clocks going on. So sometimes if you're in court, Victoria, you've probably heard this term. They'll say, um, we're charging it to the prosecution. What is the it? They're charging the number of days to tally off to the prosecution or the defense. Like if the defense needs more time to prepare his case, he'll say, I'm asking for an adjournment. So, oh, you asking for an adjournment to what date? Two more weeks. All right, so now they're going to subtract the 14 days from the 18080. So that time clock, somebody has to be keeping track of where we are with the time wonder, clock. Who are the timekeepers of these, like, weird <coughs> temporal negotiations yeah. that happen that end up leaving people's lives in the balance? Who are these, like... Keepers of time in the New York courts. And where are their allegiances? It's true. Are they like the Harry Potter guys, like Mm. in the basement of a vault, like that hold the crystal orb of time? I have no idea. It's it's really a wonder. Like, who is really keeping tally on these things? They say, they say, I need to get that on a t-shirt. They They say, say. They say that the defense and the prosecution is supposed to be responsible for the speedy time and keep tally. Because some defense attorneys, they use speedy trial to actually as a defense mechanism where they're like, we're going to drag this out because the prosecutors know they don't have this. We're going to keep dragging it out. They're going to keep charging the time on them. And then we're going to put a motion in to say, you need to dismiss these charges because you ran out of time. And sometimes it works. But that's such a risk because if your client is in, you really wasting their, that person's time. Yeah. It only works when the defendant is out. The defendant's out, it's one thing. If they're wasting the time and the defendant's stuck in Rikers, I mean, that's a nightmare. Legal Aid does it all the time. Sorry, Legal Aid, you do do it. Because, you know, they have too many cases in the first place. And if they really are passionate about their clients... It's like running out the clock. It's That's all it is. It's a game. It's a game. Now... I'll put this out, of course, as a disclaimer. I did not go to law school, but all of this that I'm saying is based on the 14 years of covering courts and understanding what I see all the time. Fast forward to the Chanel Lewis case. They didn't make an arrest for six months. There were billboards up for reward money. Not sure if if all the billboards were put up by the Vetrano family or NYPD. You know, $10,000 reward if you get a tip. There were three key billboards up. One on the corner of Pennsylvania Avenue and Flatlands, 
Another one by the Erskine Street exit by the Belt Parkway. And the third one was somewhere in the Howard Beach Cross Bay Parkway area. We are in April 2019, right? Drive by Pennsylvania in Flatlands. Go to the entrance to the Erskine Street entrance to the Belt Parkway. They still got help wanted signs up. Why? I think what are we I, looking for? I think I saw that on, on my way to the airport when the driver was taking a more expensive route. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure, right? <laughs> I passed the entrance of the Erskine Street exit on my way to the verdict, and I stared at it in disgust because I'm like, I cannot believe I am going to a verdict for a trial and there's still seasoned, weathered, you know, posters up that have survived all seasons, and I'm going to the verdict for this particular case. And, but what are the billboards exactly saying? You got the photograph of the sketch, that of which was this person that they wanted in questioning that may have seen what happened. Mm-hmm. And then next to it, it's the, it was, I think, a $100,000 reward if you call the number for, you know, 1-800-CRIME-STOPPERS, whatever, tip line. I don't know who's responsible for keeping them up there. Well, the, the billboard makes me wonder about how that relates to juries. And, you know, you were in the courtroom um, Both times. And, yeah. <laughs> and and so my question is, you know, when, when you do jury selection, a big question is, have you read media coverage? Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with the case? Right. You know, trying to see, you know, is this jury, even if even if they're totally, you know, good, unbiased people going in there, is there some way they could have accidentally been influenced by some outside force or data. Mm-hmm. So did the billboards that were everywhere, um, you know, come into play at all in the jury selection process? Like, did anybody ask about, hey, have you seen these billboards? No, no. I have not recalled hearing them ask about these billboards. The billboards never come up as a thing in these criminal cases. I I, I mean, especially this one. It just And you think the family put them up? Because NYPD, um, before the first trial, said they were taking down their posters. Okay. But the ones that we're talking about are still up. So I don't know what posters they took down to say who's in charge of these that we're talking about. So what so going back to like what had actually happened with the father in between the first trial and the second trial. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the other elements of this case that make it such an like such an important and strange happening in the city? Oh, it's the arrest. Here you have 6 months later, you know, they have a full on we're looking for Who killed this girl? We need some witnesses. We need this. We need that. According to trial testimony, the task force of the Karina Vetrano murder case went from like over 100 detectives scouring the streets of Howard Beach in Brooklyn. Um, I don't know if they touched Long Island. I mean, it is right there, right? But anyway, um, they were hitting the streets, you know, following leads for a long time. And then the list of detectives dwindled down to like maybe under 20. Right. A hundred detectives on one case. Mm -hmm. How how often does that happen? I mean, do you see that in all communities or? Well, any person will tell you, depending on the affluence of the family, it will influence how an investigation rolls. And like I mentioned, the father was a retired FDNY. His I mean, they're friends. all out in Howard's Beach and Ro- um, Rockaways, right? The retired cops, yeah. firefighters. Right. You know what I mean? There's like a whole community of retired 
first responders and law enforcement. I don't mm-hmm. think that's a secret out there in those areas. Well, you would I would think. I guess what I was trying to say is if something similar happened to a, a person in East New York, which is the neighborhood right— A minority in East New York. Exactly, right. yes. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, same circumstances. Are there a um, hundred detectives out yeah. there dredging the— wetlands or the whatever. weeds yeah i mean i'm still waiting to find out if they're gonna find somebody who chopped up that girl's body in the canarsie park what happened to that case chopped the girl body up put it in the bag and left it on the side of the road there's a lot of law enforcement in howard's beach so there's a lot of detectives on this case yeah more than would be in other places in the city especially in like low-income areas absolutely and then you know she was a pretty she was beautiful as the prosecutor liked to repeatedly say beautiful karina you know beautiful beautiful we learned very few details about her through the trial but you know independent reporting um you learned that you know she's she was 30 years old she was a st john's university graduate um she traveled the world she was an avid runner she ran every day she did marathons and when she did do her travels she um you know hiked and she went on all these different like adventurous trails like for her short-lived life she was very well traveled and um she also had an online blog where she did her poetry and some of it maybe i'm misinterpreting it but it alluded to her going through a lot of struggles with you know when she was a she was much younger she may have had some type of sexual assault that happened to her and she talked about that on the blog which is still live and up until a few days ago people were still logging on and reading it so I don't know if it's the family just trying to have a little piece of her still she also went into acting she did a couple of roles so she was doing stuff you know she was becoming something you know she was molding herself into her 30s right right so the arrest was what was strange okay okay so essentially at some point this detective that was assigned to the case john russo lieutenant john russo he also lives in howard beach and he was assigned to the case as they're getting towards january of 2017 he remembers calling 911 on a person who was wandering in the neighborhood back in may of 2016 And he was like, I need to find out who that kid was. Um, And then as the trial went on, he described the fact that the first time he saw this person in the neighborhood, he said he followed him in his car as the person was on foot for 45 minutes while his two young daughters are in the back seat followed him to make sure where was he going, what was he doing. And then he described like how he went up this block, he went down that block, da 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 And then he calls 911 and you hear the 911 call and he's like, I don't know what he's doing, but he's not, he doesn't, he's not supposed to be in this neighborhood. I don't know him, whatever. And then we learned in the second trial that there was another neighbor in Howard Beach who also said the words of, I've never seen him before. He doesn't belong here. You could revert back to the uh, Michael Griffin case. Okay. Right. That's where Howard Beach, um, communities, um, racially charged incidents started from there. Michael Griffin was, um, he was attacked with bats from the neighborhood people. You That's know. what I'm thinking. And then there was a case later on in the 2000s where um, a bunch of kids, African-American, were in the Howard Beach area. And they were chased into the Belt Parkway and the kid got ran over by a car. A lot of racially motivated um, situations come from Howard Beach. I, as a reporter going into Howard Beach, I have been 
yelled at. I've been called the police. I've been called on by the police for simply doing my job and, you know, press pass on everything. Didn't that happen when you were reporting on the Chanel Lewis case? Yeah. Neighbors, you know, they were like, what are you doing here? You what, Who are you with? I mean, and you're like, can you read my press yeah, pass? It says it press on it. Didn't do matter. they not teach you how to read? It didn't matter. matter. It's like racist school. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I got treated terribly when I covered this case and other cases in that neighborhood. Just being black in Howard Beach is not a thing to be. And it's not a thing to be. And unfortunately, um, somehow, some way, this detective, who they called the rock star in the Daily News, you know, he tracks down the, the beat cops that pulled that, you know, stopped and frisked him, which at the time was unconstitutional. And, you know, he didn't get a summons or arrested or anything like that. And then an hour after he um, left the scene, he calls the cops because he sees Chanel again in the Rockaways eating a hamburger. And the police officer he called, Russo, who he called, was like, yeah, I know. We took him to McDonald's. He was hungry. Like, why are you calling the cops so many times on this one kid that you saw in your neighborhood and it just didn't make any sense where he got this notion that we have to call the police on every person that doesn't look like me in my neighborhood. So Chanel, we later learned, has learning disabilities. He actually went to school at a special school in the Rockaways, which is not too far from over there. And he says he goes over there to get food normally. But when the police showed up at his house, he consented to a DNA swab and somehow, some way, male donor A um, DNA that was found under Karina's fingernails and on her on her um, cell phone matched male donor A, which was AKA allegedly Chanel Lewis. Now she was, according to prosecutors, she was sexually assaulted. Did they find any DNA on her body that would be, you know, other than her fingernails that would be indicative of sexual assault Correct. that matched to Chanel Lewis? Right, and the charges of sexual assault were essentially molestation. He grabbed her breast. He grabbed her. But they showed images of, like, vaginal stuff and, you know, all of this other, but no information to say that he actually raped her or anything like that. It made no sense, the connection. So fast forward, second trial on the 11th hour, anonymous letter comes in to the defense. And it's a person who claims to be a law enforcement agent who was involved with the Chanel Lewis um, investigation, Karina Vetrano investigation. They lay out all this information about the case that the prosecute, I mean, the defense has been wanting to get for years, and the prosecutor has denied the defense from getting. And it had even a theory of how Chanel's DNA ended up on her. The anonymous writer claims that. Possibly Karina and him met each other and in a way as strangers would. They bumped into each other at a place on Cross Bay Boulevard. She dropped her phone. He picked it up for her. She went about her business. That's the theory that this anonymous writer has. The anonymous writer also accompanied police information of mugshots of people who are African-American who were arrested in the Howard Beach area between 2013 and after her death in 2016. None of them are Chanel. Russo claimed that they got Chanel's address because he got a summons for being a peeping Tom in 2013, but it's not in the records. So when the defense went to court before closing arguments to ask like, hey, can we open up an inspection of this information? The judge said no. Same judge that said no Allen charge for the first jury, declared the mistrial. The same judge says, I'm not opening up a hearing. 
So, I mean, this is all grounds for appeal. So the appeal is going to be interesting. Closing arguments happen. Four o'clock, the jury gets the case. Four o'clock, courts close 445. The judge says, y'all can go back there and start deliberating. We'll order dinner. And if you stay late, we'll order you cars to go home. Now, last I checked, the judicial system got a budget. And the reason why courts close at 445, some courts 430, is because they can't afford to have court officers after a certain time because they're fighting for their contracts still, right? Okay, that's a whole nother conversation. And this man is willing to pay. They had lunch, they having dinner, and they're going to get car service home. So they stayed late. So 9 o'clock, five hours later, they came back with a verdict, and it was guilty on all charges. Spoke to a juror afterwards on an anonymity. How do you say anonymity? Anonymity. Yeah. Anonymity. Yes. He wanted to, to be anonymous. I don't know how to pronounce words <laughs> at this hour. He wanted to be anonymous. And he was very forthwith to say, when I went back into the jury room, I thought I was going to be like-minded with my other jurors and say this was a racially charged case. Something was off with Russo. There was something wrong with how they picked up Chanel Lewis. He, in my opinion was not strong enough to sway his other fellow jurors to understand that this was a racially charged case and there was something up with this from the beginning. He didn't believe there was a sexual assault. He didn't see sexual assault. He didn't see the evidence to prove there was a sexual assault. Now, the sexual assault charge was hindering on the first-degree murder charge. So if they didn't find him guilty of sexual assault, they couldn't find him guilty of first-degree murder. But the rest of the jurors believed he sexually assaulted her and convinced this man that he sexually assaulted her, even though he didn't believe he did. And that's why he was convicted of first-degree murder. Now, did this juror, did did you tell him about the letter when you talked to him? And yeah. You, oh, what, did he, what did he say? He said, of course, he didn't know about it. He would have liked to know about it. As of yesterday, the juror has been very openly following reporters and commenting in our comments on Twitter and wanting to talk, but not, it's weird. Like he wanted to be anonymous that night, but now I guess he's reading stuff and seeing the letter. I think he's having some second thoughts about what decision he should have made or tried to get them to make. Is he announcing himself on Twitter as who he is? His full name is on this, his account. Mm -hmm. I don't know what he really wants to do with that, but he has been very active about, being known that, hey, I can help you out with that. Right. Yeah. So what do you think is going to happen? Well, he'll be sentenced. Chanel will be sentenced on April 19th to life in prison without the possibility of parole. He's 22 years old. Um, and then there'll be an appeal, which will could take up to six months, to, excuse me, to a year for them to file it. Well, I mean, could the dad's inconsistent statements play into this as well? I mean, it is kind of telling how the first trial, the father touching the body and, you know, having the, the necklace tested later on, it alluded to contaminating the um, scene. Second trial, they made it seem like the scene was clean. He didn't do this. He didn't do that. Um, he, Him touching his daughter in front of other officers, in my opinion, could be a strategy for him to be excluded from any other DNA on her body. I'm just saying, right? right? With all of that being done, then the the Emmy, her testimony was different from the first trial to the second trial. First trial, we didn't hear anything about a possibility that her injuries were consistent of more than one person could have done the injuries. Second trial, we heard that. Okay. And then you fast forward to the letter, which the first 12 days of the investigation, 
they were looking for, quote, two jacked up white guys from Howard Beach. Who are you quoting? The anonymous letter. The anonymous letter, two jacked up white guys from Howard Beach. Right. So we go from that to all of a sudden now we're looking for all African-American people. And they tested over 360 African-Americans in the area who had criminal records to see if it matched Karina Vetrano's um, DNA. So there's something missing here. The, the, the chain of the information and the investigation is missing that the defense never had. All of these things that each equals a fair trial was not there. Even the judge keeping the jury in for so many hours, that's excessive in the courts. They'll find that the jury wasn't in the right mind, even though you fed them and, you know, you kept them warm, you know, like coffee with almond co- milk. You know what I'm saying? One of the things they requested. Oh, almond God drink. Oh, almond that's right. drink. Almond drink. Almond drink. That, that dairy lobby. That dairy lobby is coming through to make <laughs> yeah. sure almond and oat and soy, they can't say milk anymore. They just got to be like the drink. Yeah. Almond drink. Just, but know. as we were talking before, it's better than almond juice yeah just, <laughs> you, know, you know one thing that's always you know and, and that's always kind of made me wonder about this case is uh you know you haven't taken sides but i feel like you have definitely brought a, like you know this critical eye to both sides of the story and been like why well, don't understand why is that the case or why isn't this the case but the thing that's kind of always made me wonder is why isn't there a more broad level of skepticism, both mm. in the media and also even just among true crime buffs? Critically putting it all and laying it out so people can really see how it was presented. Because us talking right here, I'm not just coming up with this information. This can be sourced. You know what I mean? But I do want to be clear. I'm not saying I'm on one side or the other, right? What my position as a criminal justice reporter, my important job is to see that cases are tried fairly. I don't care if the person is guilty as sin. If I find that that person's case was not investigated properly or things were done to, you know, skirt certain things just so that they can fit the mold to their narrative, meaning the people versus whomever, I'm going to report it. I did this for the Peter Liang case, the People versus Peter Liang, a, a former cop now who sh- um, fired his weapon in the dark in the East New York um, pink houses, ends up killing Akai Gurley. It wasn't like he pointed and shot Akai Gurley. His inexperienced rookie behavior opening fire in the dark stairwell that rickish the bullet ricochets and kills Akai Gurley was the crime. Um, he was convicted of manslaughter. It was apparent that this was an egregious second-degree manslaughter case. Everybody was on board. It was the first conviction in New York since the two, early 2000s. It was the first um, indictment in years, you know what I mean? Of a, of a, of a police officer. Right. I mean, there's so many police-involved shootings these days, and this one wasn't even caught on video, and it was still an indictment, right? So it was a big deal for Brooklyn, New York. I found a juror afterwards who convicted Liang just to find out what was going on in the room. Reporters do that. They chase after jurors to find out what happened in the room. Walk us through the um, process of you convicting this cop. And that juror I then found out was in the jury pool for another trial where it was a triple homicide. And he told the judge in the triple homicide on jury selection that he cannot be fair in that case because his father was convicted of manslaughter when he was a kid. Mm. Fast forward to the jury. somehow selected on this other uh, case that's going to be up for manslaughter in second degree. And doesn't mention it to the judge. So I I 
asked him, I, and I got the minutes from the court, like of him saying my dad was. Da, da, da. So I confronted him about it, and he was like, "You know, I really wanted to be on that jury because it was important for me to see how this case would go through." Huh? That's juror misconduct. You don't doctor yourself to be a part of something just to make sure that it goes one way over the other. So even though this case was cut and dry, yeah. that fact would have you say yes that they should do a new trial absolutely this was not a fair jury and people questioned me about even reporting it but why would you report something like that we got justice for this man's family why would you go ahead and do that because everybody is in my opinion afforded the right to a fair trial i don't care if it's on video i don't care if it was in the dark i don't care if there's eyewitnesses who watched you do it if you're not afforded a fair trial, I'm going to report on it if I find that there's any kind of misconduct. And and in your opinion, was Chanel Lewis afforded a fair trial? No, not at all. From the first one to the second one, it just got worse and worse the more we got into this case. So, no, he did not get a fair trial at all. And there you have it. And, Christina, thank you so thank much. Thank you so much, Thank Christina. you for having me. I hope you write a book on this case because oh, you have see. all of the knowledge and you know, un- understanding. And we really want to see more on this case from you in the universe, throw it in, in the, the universe. universe. Yes. Go out there, pick up a copy of the torch. Yes. Or you have to go to the St. John's university campus and pick it up, or you can read it online at torchonline.com. But I would urge people to pick up the Queens Eagle and go to queenseagle.com to read all the coverage of local news within the Queens community. It's a great newspaper. Yeah. It's really all great. newspapers are great news. Just go out and buy the newspaper. Educate yourself. Educate yeah. yourself. Let's <laughs> support your local bodega. Let's get your shit yes. together. Because yeah. where else would you get the paper? Put your phone down, roll up the paper, stick it under your arm, because anybody – you know what? I'm just going to appeal to the people like this. Cool points. People look cooler with physical newspapers in their hand. You'll get more dates, no matter your gender. Is that you're, a newspaper you're reading? Is that a newspaper you're reading? Is you that must new- be real smart. That's a so pickup line now? Yeah. It should be. It should be. It actually kind of rings, you know? I'm visualizing this happening. I'm pretty sure I got my boyfriend by – um. <laughs> Like, you know, my attachment to, like, the tactile nature of books and newspapers. Excuse Mm. me. Well, I like your newspaper, but I prefer broadsheets myself. (laughs) (laughs) Is that that ink on your fingers? (laughs) Are you just happy to see me? (laughs) I don't know. Should that be be in the podcast? 100%. I love That makes the cut. Oh, good. At least I'm not licking the microphone today. Not today. Mercy. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) <laughs> Just Us is a FAQ NYC joint produced by Alex Brooklyn and created and hosted by Alex and Victoria Bekempis and recorded at the McSilver Institute for Poverty, Policy, and Research. Special thanks to guest Christina Correga, and we'll see you again soon. News. 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 New York City. F-A-Q. F-A-Q.